I find it interesting if you look at like, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in, in the US as well, but in Europe and the UK, most university students will take a gap year and many of them will, will travel Southeast Asia, but very few of them actually come to China. I think that's quite a shame because China has so much to offer. They have cities, they have nightlife, they have beaches, they have deserts, they have forests, you know, they have jungle. They literally have everything. Um, and yet very few young people actually choose to come to China. I think that's quite, quite sad, really. So in addition to China facilitating more travel to itself, we shouldn't be encouraging people in the West to come to see China for themselves, to see it beyond the headlines. For sure. Don't just read the headlines in mainstream media. You know, do, do a bit of mm. digging, do, do some research, look at independent media like uh, YouTube, for example. You know, there are a lot of um, people within China, people actually here in China who are uploading content and mm. showing, you know, what China's really like as opposed to what the narrative in mainstream media is. Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. My name is Jason. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Today with us, we have a very special guest. Lee Barrett is a social media influencer and key opinion leader with more than 350,000 followers on YouTube as of a couple of weeks ago, actually, so it could have grown, not to mention his other platforms, various other platforms. A citizen of the UK living in China, he makes videos about his life in China and does analysis about China technology and geopolitics. Many of his videos deal with technology and industry as it impacts human beings, society and civilization. He is regularly featured in media around the world, including CGTN. Welcome to the show, Mr. Lee Barrett. Hi, Jason. Thank you very much. <laughs> really appreciate uh, you inviting me. Well, you know, uh, it's always nice to have a China hands insight into, you know, can I ask you really quick, how long have you actually been living here? Okay, so I've lived here permanently for five years here in Shenzhen. However, um, the first time I came to China was 18 years ago. And for that first sort of 13 years, wow. I probably spent half of my time here in China and half back in the UK. And I was flipping backwards and forwards sort of four times a year. So I'd spend like a month or so here, a month or so back in the UK, maybe two months here, two months in the UK. So I did this for sort of 13 years. Um, and then, as I say, five years ago, I, I moved here permanently. You know, I think every person I've interviewed thus far who has lived in China, basically, mostly exclusively just lived in China for some this period is. of time. So your experience of going back and forth probably gave you more unique insights because that's a less common a way of living. For sure. Could you tell us a little bit about why you came to China in the first place? What was your decision-making process at that time? Okay. So at that time, I had a business and I was making bean bags, which is a soft furnishing for anybody who doesn't know that. They're kind of big, yeah. like cushion seats. I've had some, yeah. <laughs> and they were being made by a factory in Hangzhou. Um, but I, at that time, I wasn't dealing direct with a factory myself. I was dealing through, um, I wouldn't say an agent. He was actually a friend um, who was married to a woman from Shanghai. And they had a business here where they were helping 
and foreign companies do sort of sourcing and overseeing quality of manufacturing. And they invited me out um, and uh, I took up that offer and I landed in Shanghai and I thought, wow, this place is just amazing. And I kind of fell in love with China. And ever since then, I, I was coming back, as I say, backwards and forwards four times a year till I eventually moved here. So what was your decision process when you actually decided to move here? What made you make that jump? Okay, well, <laughs> well, that's easy. Um, I At that time, I was doing a lot of sourcing. Um, moved on from beanbags. I was now doing sort of mobile phone accessories. And wow. a lot of that product was coming out of Guangzhou and some was coming out of Shenzhen. And I got tired of the traveling. So I thought, oh, I'll just base myself. In China, I, I liked it there. I have um, a nice apartment here, so I thought I'll just move there. And then I now go back to the UK once, maybe twice a year, just, just to visit. Mm, wow. Um, yeah, I don't go back that often, but I, I like to go back also. A lot of the videos that I've seen, I've been following you for a long time. This is I think a lot of people who are interested in China have been following you for a long time. Uh -huh. Hence the hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, a lot of them are with your son. So whose idea was it to get into social media in the first place and uh you know, explore China together. Okay, so it was actually my idea. Um, I'd actually been thinking about this for a long, long time, but I had no experience with YouTube. Now, my son, Ollie, um, he previously had a YouTube channel. He was a gamer. He was into um, a game called Call of Duty. So he had experience of a YouTube channel. Mm. So one day I sort of asked him, look, okay, shall we start up a YouTube channel? And the initial idea was that it was going to be a YouTube channel where we traveled around Southeast Asia with China being our base. So mm -hmm. I would say probably the channel was going to be 50% China and the other 50% would have been other Southeast Asian countries, South Korea, Japan, you know, Thailand, etc. But shortly after we started, um, COVID came along. So it threw a total spanner into the works about sort of traveling around other Southeast Asian countries. But the overlying or the, the, the sort of over, the, the biggest factor of wanting to do it was because I traveled back to the UK um, extensively and the narrative I was seeing there from people didn't align with the life I was living in China. There was a massive sort of um, disconnect between what people thought about China and what China was actually like. Well, so you, you transitioned or pivoted the reasons for making content from our adventures to this is what China is really like and trying to tell China's real story so that people would have a more accurate understanding of what life was like here. Yeah, that, that that's right. I mean, I, I as I said earlier, I've traveled backwards and forwards for 13 years and I, I used to get very, very frustrated. I'd sometimes go back to the UK and I I wouldn't mention to people that I'd spent considerable time in China. I would have people say, oh, China this, China that, blah, 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 blah. And then at the end of them, letting them have their sort of little rant, I'd say, oh, so when was it you were last in China? And they would say, oh, I've never been. And I thought, oh, well, that's really interesting that, that you have these thoughts because I've spent a lot of time there and I can tell you that, um, you know, it's not like what, what you think. So that was sort of one of the more sort of factors about sort of showing the real China to try and educate some people in the West to make them understand China a little bit more. I know it's a giant topic and there's no one or two things to say about it. For our listeners, 
who are not in China, who are maybe haven't spent much time here or have never been here. What would you like them to know about how life in China really is versus maybe the narratives that they're hearing in uh, big media? Yeah, well, I I think certainly a number of people I've met in the UK seem to think China is still like China was in the sort of 70s and 80s, still quite poor, underdeveloped. And it's obviously not like that. It's a very developed, it's it's a nation that's growing in wealth. You know, it has superb infrastructure. I just really like to say that don't try not to judge somewhere until you've actually been there. You know, it's it, it's it's a country where people, and I think this is similar with people all around the world, not, not just in China, but people are no different to people in the West. They want the same thing. So young people want to enjoy themselves. They want to go out to restaurants. They want want to go out to nightclubs, they want to buy trendy clothes, they want to listen to cool music, you know, sort of family people want to, you know, do better for their children, they want to have a nicer house, they want to have a nicer car. And that's no different to to anywhere in the world. And I think, you know, Chinese people are able to do that just like you know, people in, in the West are, there's very little difference. You know, all this business about that people are controlled and, and stuff, to, to, to my mind, it, it's just nonsense. Of course, there are rules in China and some of those rules are different to Western rules. But as a foreigner in China, I think you're a guest. So you shouldn't, you know, you, you should abide by, by those rules. And um, when I first came here, I used to get frustrated with some of those rules, um, you know, uh, not necessarily rules, but how things were done differently. And um, I used to get frustrated. But the more time I've spent here, the, the more I've learned to say, okay, that's the Chinese way of doing things. That's their way. And it's not up to me as a guest here to try and change those ways and those rules. That's actually a very similar to my own story. You know, there are things that I find different. Like, for example, in the United States, you can't walk around in most states with an open container of alcohol, whereas in China, it's like no big deal. So, I mean, in a way, that's a little bit more freedom. But I mean, for sure, there are other things that bother me a little bit in a lot of in some Chinese cities. You know, there are bicycles on the sidewalk a lot more frequently than there would be in where I'm from. And I get, oh, wow, you know, why is it there? It shouldn't be. But then I look out at the cars and I'm like, OK, I can understand maybe <laughs> why it is that way. It's not just the laws. It's also the culture because the law says the bicycle shouldn't be on the sidewalk, too. But that the culture is just like, OK, I'm on the sidewalk because, you know, look at the traffic. <laughs> it's a little frustrating coming from San Francisco, whereas if you got a bike on the sidewalk, the, the police are going to be like, whoa, stop right there. Yeah. Absolutely. Things are different. It doesn't mean that it's like bad or good. And I actually very much relate to the idea of being a guest in China. <laughs> you know, like I think it's okay to give feedback. That's one thing that's, you know, but uh, it's also not up to us foreigners living in their country where clearly they're, uh, most people are seem to be very happy and very well adjusted. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you see surveys and, and you see surveys which, which suggest that the government have a very high rating from the people. And mm. in my experience, most of the people I've spoken to here, I, I don't speak a lot of Chinese, but you can appreciate there's a lot of well-educated people in China who speak English very well. And conversations I've had with them, a majority, I would say pretty much everybody I've spoke to, they have some minor niggles, but on the whole, they're very pleased with the way their government performs for them. And you know, I think from from what I remember seeing those surveys, those ratings are well ahead of any Western governments mm, by mm. far. Oh, yeah. 
listening to the bridge. Latana does a survey every year, and usually Chinese people rate their own government at much higher levels than other governments around the world. You know, that's really interesting in Beijing. I'm not sure if it's true everywhere because, you know, I, I primarily lived in Beijing and Wuhan. Sure. But in Beijing, there's a phone number where you can call if you have a complaint about something, about anything. Like, you know, okay, people are not, you know, utilizing the subway correctly, or there's a tree where it shouldn't be, or whatever is going on. Or there's a, you know, a dog's in the neighborhood that is out of control or someone's, you know, whatever it is. You can call one, two, three, four, five and say, hey, there's, I have an issue. Can you help me solve it? And the local, you know, local government officials will try to figure out if they can solve that problem for you. So I think that's one one thing people don't understand in the West is actually like the government's very responsive when people do have complaints. For sure. I actually visited that call center in Beijing. It was a very interesting experience. There's literally a a building and there's, there's hundreds of operators and they have various sort of criteria that they aim to answer any query within 24 hours. And I just share a little insight. I had a friend uh, and during COVID, the uh, administration of the complex wouldn't let them go out. And they said, no, this this is wrong. You, You know, the central government have said that you can't keep us in the complex. So they called uh, 12345 and that situation was resolved. The um, the management of the complex then allowed them to, to leave the complex. So it just shows you how things can be addressed. I also think on the whole, um, and this is sort of uh, an impression I get from, from observing, I think the government here are more in tune with the people. I think they collect a lot of information on the mood of the people. And I personally think that was one of the things when they started um, dropping all the COVID restrictions. I feel that the government um, sensed the people were getting very restless with it and realised it's time to to change. And I think that's we had at that time a, a big change in the in the COVID policy. Mm, mm, yeah, I've always actually kind of wondered how it uh, suddenly it went from like, hey, you know, we're going to keep waiting to okay, everyone. Go about your business. It seemed like happened. yeah, and then, yeah. It was uh, it was kind of a, a a very quick change, wasn't it? Everyone I know got COVID within like a week, including me and my wife. Yeah. Then you know it was over, and basically, mostly you know ninety nine percent. It's it's pretty much rectified now. I, I don't know if you can answer this question, but I want to ask anyway. Why do you think foreign media get China so wrong in the first place? Because the narratives I hear coming out of your country and mine about uh, from the UK and the United States are not like what life is actually like here. Why is it that the journalists in these respective countries sure, sure. are not telling China's story accurately? Think, and this is, this is my opinion. I think that there's, there's two factors here. One, I think, first of all, they want to try and manufacture consent within their public to apply sanctions. It's it's fairly obvious that the US, the UK, and, and to some extent Europe want to um, push down China's economical growth. And I think that if the news was all good about China in, in the press, the public will go, well, why, why are we doing this? It's almost they have to present China as this bad place where people are evil. So it then justifies their actions with, with sanctions and sort of war talk. So that, that's my first thing. And secondly, I have another theory, and this, this may be just a, just a theory, is that for many years, certainly in the UK, taxes have been pretty high. And in the last, I would say, 
20 years, the standard of living hasn't improved that much in the UK. I think in some cases, you know, more recently, it's actually gone backwards. We have a cost of living crisis, inflation's rocketing. And it's almost as if that if the um, authorities in, in the UK and some of these Western countries let their population see how great China actually is, we've got these super modern cities, fantastic infrastructure, you know, maybe people might start asking, oh, where the, where the hell have all our tax money been spent? You know, you, you see the, the US especially collect huge amounts of tax dollars. However, they spend a massive proportion of, of their money on the military. And I often see stuff, you know, in, in a commentary where people are saying, well, we're spending all this money on um, the military. However, we don't have very good basic services. Our infrastructure is falling apart. There's, there's huge amounts of crime. And I sometimes think it's a way of trying to shield the public from seeing actually how good China is. I, I, I think that resonates with my own opinions about the topic as well. Um, you know, this show is called The Bridge, and our goal is to help people in China better understand the West and the West better understand China. And I was wondering, what kind of ideas do you have about how we can build better understanding between people and nations around the world? Okay, well, I have a little bit of experience here. Not too long ago, we did uh, four videos on our channel where we interviewed people in the street in, in a number of different countries outside China. In total, we, we spoke to about 25 people and a majority of them had a negative attitude towards China. I think three of them had a pretty neutral attitude. However, the three people that had a fairly positive attitude or a more positive attitude towards China were actually three people that had actually visited China. So my sort of thing is that if the um, Chinese government could sort of embark on a large program to bring especially young people here to actually see it and experience it for themselves, I think it would change a lot of minds because those young people would, would speak to their friends, their relatives and push that more positive tone. I find it interesting if you look at, like, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in, in the US as well, but in Europe and the UK, most university students will take a gap year and many of them will, will travel Southeast Asia, but very few of them actually come to China. I think that's quite a shame because China has so much to offer. They have cities, they have nightlife, they have beaches, they have deserts, they have forests, you know, they have jungle. They literally have everything. Um, and yet very few young people actually choose to come to China. I think that's quite, quite sad, really. So in addition to China facilitating more travel to itself, we shouldn't be encouraging people in the West to come to see China for themselves, to see it beyond the headlines. For sure. Don't just read the headlines in mainstream media. You know, do, do a bit of mm. digging, do, do some research, look at independent media like uh, YouTube, for example. You know, there are a lot of um, people within China, people actually here in China who are uploading content and mm. showing, you know, the, what China's really like as opposed to what the narrative in mainstream media is. listening to The Bridge. 
You know, I see a lot of your videos and I'm going to pivot to a new topic a bit because it's fascinating to me. And you're on factory floors, you're behind the scenes exploring things that, you know, even the foreigners who've lived here for 20 years haven't seen. What Uh motivates you to and how do you get into these kind of venues and what's the purpose of your exploration? Okay, well, particularly interested in the technology and manufacturing factors because my background's engineering, actually. Mm. Um, I qualified as an electronic engineer many years ago now. But it's just a case of work a little bit with uh, Huawei and we get invited to some of their events. And, and then other companies see our videos on the channel and go, oh, you know, we, we then get in, invites to, to factories and various events. And it's interesting to cover the technology because I think that, you know, Chinese technology is moving very quickly. If you take 5G, for instance, mm-hmm. a lot of the talk in the West is, is oh, you know, it's it's faster for videos on our phone and that. But China are embracing a whole different area of that 5G technology and they're embracing it in manufacturing and construction and project management and many, many different areas where I don't see so much of that happening in the West. And I feel that that because the Chinese government has a lot of sort of scientists, engineers um, based in it, there's a bigger understanding of how to use technology to advance the economy and manufacturing than in the West. So you work with Huawei. That's fantastic. So I used to have a Huawei phone. Going to go back. Right now I'm on Xiaomi. Uh My wife made me get me Xiaomi. She was like, oh, no, no, this one's much better. I like it. But I honestly, I do like Huawei more. So I'm I'm, I'm going back. Uh They do a lot of telecommunications equipment in addition to just like regular phones. So I think... A lot of people misunderstand uh, their entire company is diverse across a range of products. It's not just phones. There's so much more going on there. For sure. I mean, they're into they're into like cloud computing. They're into, you know, carrier communications. As you just mentioned, most people think they're just a consumer goods company, but that is just a tiny, tiny part of their business. I mean, they're even something I, I learned like 12 months ago. Um, they're big into um, all the controllers for solar energy. Um, and they have so many green initiatives. They have like a team of, really? of engineers and their whole remit is to make their equipment use less power. And they have all sorts of like AI algorithms and machine learning. So a lot of their equipment um, uses the minimum minimum amount of power, but still deliver the same functionality. I think that's a you know really stellar thing to be doing. You know, on my agenda for the next up- upcoming year is to go and explore a lot of uh, green energy, sure. renewable energy installations myself. So uh, I'm hoping to see yeah. more of that very soon. Actually, there's one here close to Beijing. I'll be going to in the next couple of weeks. Oh, that's cool. I see. I see um, on your Twitter you talk a lot about green energy. And I think it's something that personally, I, I think even Chinese media don't cover it enough because it's a massive thing. You know, you, you look at China often gets criticized for being the world's biggest polluter in quotation marks. And the, the, there's a lot of thing wrong with that statement. You know, you have to look at a per capita basis for, for just one example here. 
But if you look at the amount of, of green energy they're implementing, it's absolutely massive. And I think you highlight a lot of that on, on your Twitter feed. It's astounding. And they're, it's not well understood. Under understood is what I was going to say. But yeah, there's there's an enormous... And I think it's... It, actually, I don't even need to do much promoting. I feel like at the speed that they're building, that within one or two years, it will become so common in discourse globally that it, it will not be able to be overlooked. So... So I'm, I'm actually not, uh, I don't feel that there's a lot of pressure on me to spread that information, although I do. Uh-huh. I think it's going to become so patently obvious that it, it, it'll it be like the giant elephant in the room. Um, there are a lot of vloggers uh-huh. outside of China who make, and experts outside of China, uh, some who, who have either never been to China or haven't been to China in five or 10 or even 20 years. Uh-huh. And I was wondering um, what your opinion about at these Experts who have not had a lot of experience with contemporary China making content about China. Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I find it unbelievable. I find it unbelievable how people are are you know kind of swayed by this kind. I I think there's there's one overriding. Well, there's two facts. I think there's there's the ones that want to you know tarnish China, and I suspect a number of them have backing from sort of. Um, organizations that want to do that. And then there's the independence. But there's a couple prominent ones who get a huge amount of views on YouTube. And they, they're a couple of guys that spent time here. And I think in their case, they're just chasing the money because I think if you make videos that are anti-China, you're swimming with the tide of public opinion in the West. So you're reinforcing what those people want to believe, whether it's true or not. And I think then you generate a huge amount of views and that in turn generates much more money. I mean, I feel sometimes making the content I do, it's like pushing a boulder up a mountain. <laughs> but it gives you a, a large sense of, of achievement when you get those comments that say like, oh, mm. um, you know, watching your videos has, has changed my mind on China. I actually bumped into a couple when I was in Thailand um, late last year um, and they were waiting to to come into to China. Um, they're actually an English couple, but they says the one mm. you know one of the the main reasons we're moving to China mm-hmm. is because we watched your videos, and and that that really gives you a lot of, of mm-hmm. sort of a good feeling, you know, inspiration to to continue. Because sometimes, as as I said, it is it's it's really really hard work sometimes because the the amount of sort of pushback you get on on some of the videos when. And I try to be as factual as possible. And, and when it's an opinion, I will often say, in my opinion, I'm not trying to lie. Or, or But e- even when you present facts to people, some of those people still don't want to accept the facts. And I think it's, I don't know, it's hard to know ways of, of actually doing more. You know, the, the, the only thing I can do is show my life here, show places here, show factories here. And, and little by little, I think people will be convinced that China's not like the Western mainstream media narrative. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge.
Well, you do have a background in technology and you do explore technology in a way that no one I know really does. So your comments on the semiconductor struggle right now might be particularly uh, insightful. So could you comment a little bit about China's prospects for creating its own supply chain for high end microprocessors, microchips, semiconductors? For sure. I mean, it's, it's obviously quite a complex subject. And I think I actually personally think that the, the US have shot themselves in the foot with this policy. Yes, it will cause China problems in the short term, but China have a huge, huge base of very skilled people. I mean, just Huawei alone have 40,000 engineers. A majority of those hold master's degrees. A portion of those, those hold PhDs. They will be working very hard on solving this problem. And from my observations, I think they're moving very quickly along the lines of solving these problems. Now, a lot of people talk about silicon, but silicon as a material for semiconductors is almost at the point where they can't push it any further. But there's actually alternate technologies. There's something called chip tech, chip letter technology, which China are pumping a lot of resource into. There's also opto chips, which work on light rather than electrical pulses. And I know there's been a group set up at Tsinghua University. Tsinghua University is um, China's premium university for, for anybody who's not aware. But there's been a number of groups set up there to research different technologies. So it may be, it's possible that in the not too distant future, China could actually leapfrog silicon. And I just get the feeling there'll be a lot going on that is happening right now that they don't announce because I think they want to wait until it's ready for market and, and just, you know, spending time around Huawei people because I do I do some projects with Huawei. The feeling is that, okay, this is a bump in the road. As, as you know, um, a lot of listeners won't know, but, but China don't take a short-term approach on things. They take a, a long-term approach. So for China, seven to 10 years is not a huge amount of time. Um, whereas if you look at the countries that have imposed these sanctions and policies, they all work on this five-year cycle because that's how their election cycle works. So I think a lot of this is done. You know, you might get another um, administration in the US who has a slightly different approach. I already see pushback from um, the CEOs of, of Intel and Qualcomm and AMD suggesting that the policies that the US have put on China are actually harming their own business because China's their biggest market. So they, they can't sell to China, so they can't earn as much revenue, so they then don't have as much revenue to put into R&D where it seems to me China has no shortage of money to put into R&D because it's a it's a government initiative that we want to become tech self-sufficient. Well, you've given your background and that you're from the UK this and is. that you spent 13 years going back and forth. I noticed in H1, there was an increase of 117% year on year in FDI coming from the UK to China. And this is despite a lot of rhetoric coming from leadership and from media saying that there should be, I think it's not called decoupling and it's de-risking now. De-risking, so yeah. yeah. What do you think the future 
future of Sino-UK relations might look like? Uh, how how uh, is business shaping up over the next one, two or three years? Okay, so just, just rewind a little bit. Um, at the time the UK exited the European Union, we had a, a Prime Minister David Cameron and a Chancellor George Osborne. They were two guys who really saw the benefit of working with China. Now, the, the, the UK government is in a, a huge financial hole. Um, we have a huge amount of debt similar to the USA. So the only people that are able to finance huge projects in the UK are countries like China and maybe the Middle East. So a lot of the big projects were actually financed by China. And I'm really puzzled why when Cameron and George Osborne uh, resigned after they, they Brexit, I'm really surprised why the, the, the new government went so anti-China because the whole plan was that we were going to leave the EU and forge closer ties with China, which in my mind was a very sensible thing to do. You know, the, the, the growth economies are China and Southeast Asia, not Europe and the US. And I was really surprised about that. And fast forward to now, I actually see a disconnect in politicians sort of re the, the, what they're saying and business. Businesses as you say, still investing a lot in China because they see the potential of the Chinese market. This whole de-risking, de-leveraging, decoupling, I think it's all a bit of a myth because I think there's nowhere in the world who can manufacture like China can manufacture. Not only have they got manufacturing supply chains and clusters established, which have taken years to build up and, and cost you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. They also have a massive, unbelievable infrastructure to move goods around, both incoming and outgoing. And many people will talk about, oh, India is going to take all, all, all this from China. I think that's potentially can happen, but over a very, very, very long term, because India just don't have the infrastructure to get goods in and out of factories like China do. But focusing back, back on the UK, I personally think that companies know it's not really an option to decouple from China. Um, they see that China has a huge market. They see that manufacturing is, is super efficient in China. And I think we will continue to see investment in China from, from the UK, even though the speak from the politicians will be counter to that argument. I think economies are driven by businesses, not necessarily politicians. listening to The Bridge. I was actually going to ask just exactly about that because you mentioned NVIDIA and Qualcomm. I might maybe saying their names wrong, oh, sure. but Tim Cook from Apple was here in China, I don't know, two weeks ago. Elon Musk was here. He comes regularly a yeah. couple of times a year now. Do you think that the pushback from a lot of very important businesses who are coming to do business in China might be able to correct or adjust some of the uh, political leadership in our countries vis-a-vis -vis China? I'd like to think so, but I really don't think it will happen because I think the, the politicians are a small group. I have a very interesting story. I was back in London recently and we were watching something. I got talking to a family from the US um, and they were actually from Washington, D.C. And I was sort of talking about, I says, oh, you know, the the um, sort of geopolitics, there's, there's a, a lot of tussle. And the guy turned around to me straight and says, 
you know, don't think a majority of Americans think like that. It's actually a small group. And I was somewhat surprised by that because I, I actually thought there was a, a sort of larger portion of Americans who were thinking that. He says, no, no, it's, it's a very small group. But I also think it's it's bipartisan as well. And, and I get that feeling w with the, the UK. Similar to, to the US, we only have two parties that are ever likely to be in power in the UK. And they're both pretty anti-China. And come, come election time, it's like, who can be the most anti-China? But I think I think the businesses are to somewhat putting more and more pressure on them and from a policy point of view to try and sort of spell out how it is actually hurting their business. So I'd, I'd like to think that the, the pressure from business will change, but I think the narrative from the policymakers will still be similar. And just to add, I, I think... I feel right now British don't have their own foreign policy. I think they pretty much do what the um, US asks them or tell them to do. And, and I get the feeling that's somewhat with, with Europe as well. You know, I think I think Europe are finding themselves in a really difficult position at the moment. You have Macron sort of out on a, a, a branch sort of suggesting that, you know, we shouldn't follow everything the US tell us to do. Um, but a lot of the other Europeans... Are they just afraid to speak out against it or or are they, you know, on board with, with U.S. foreign policy? I, I'm not sure. Well, as a humanist, I look at the situation in the U.K. and I don't fully understand it being from the U.S. Our systems are somewhat dissimilar. I've noticed the inflation is really bad and that <laughs> growth, GDP growth has been stagnant. A little bit negative in a couple of quarters mm -hmm. in the, of the last few years. So, what's the uh, you know short term, mid term outlook? Is are things going to be improving in the next year or two? Um, I personally don't think so. I think there's a lot of people in who are living in in the UK now who are really struggling with the cost of living, um, and a lot of it I believe is self inflicted. We won't go into that, but. Obviously, the, the Russia-Ukraine thing has had a, a large bearing on that. But I think it's a big mistake for the government not to push sort of pro-China policies. I, I hear, you know, that the, the UK government ministers come out with things like, oh, we, we need to um, counter China because they, they will, you know, they vector our way of living. And I just don't see how that is the case really. I mean, I, I speak to most, you know, average UK families and they're not really that bothered about China are doing. They're more worried about paying their mortgage and living their life and affording their grocery. Um, I think a lot of this um, China rhetoric is just created by politicians um, in some respect to, mm. to try and hide their own um, shortcomings. You know, I, I, there's a lot of things the UK government need to address at home, but they like to deflect from the problems at home by trying mm. to blame somebody else. And that somebody else at the moment is China. I think that a lot of Americans would agree with you in terms of our own country that things like rail is just one example. I don't want to overuse this example because it's become like a go-to, <laughs> but it's very clear that the US <laughs> infrastructure sure. is... I mean, if the United States wants to be extremely competitive and wants to de-risk, they need to build their own logistics infrastructure and it <laughs> currently doesn't exist in a way that's suitable for the United States to grow. I want to talk about innovation a little bit. Uh -huh. In the United States and in, in Europe sometimes, there is a discussion that China can't 
innovate. And the moving of semiconductor industries out of Taiwan and into the United States is a goal of the United States. Yet most of the, a lot of the uh, experts and engineers in this field are from China. And a lot of experts and engineers are now, because of anti-Chinese hate, crime, and violence, and rhetoric, are moving back to China. Is it even possible for the United States to develop a meaningful semiconductor industry in North America, given that most of the expertise seems to be in China and not in the United States? Yeah, well, this is a, this is really interesting. Um, I, I, I think they will struggle. I mean, You've only got to look at the amount of STEM graduates China, you know, pushes through every year. As as I mentioned earlier, just just Huawei had a huge amount of of super smart people. I, I actually recently interviewed a, a number of them for a series on Huawei, and these these guys are like super super smart guys in in their fields. And Huawei has a lot of these people. You know, they 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 invest a huge amount of money into R and D. And very recently in the news, we know that um, the U.S. government have enticed TSMC, which is Taiwan's largest semiconductor plant, to build a fab. I believe it's in Texas, Arizona. Already, they've had to delay the opening of that plant by um, just a little over a year because they just can't recruit the expertise they need. So now it was planned to open in 2024. Now they've pushed it back to 2025. And they're even saying that to to get the plant up and running, they're going to have to ship a load of engineers from Taiwan to the US because they just can't get the people. And as you mentioned, um, also recently, more and more top scientists and researchers are returning from the US back to China and other countries in Southeast Asia simply because they don't feel welcome in the States. You know, a number of them have been branded as spies or, or they're being watched very closely. They don't feel comfortable there. They're being abused uh, with hate crime. So I think this is going to have a really detrimental effect on the US. I mean, I, I just give you, when I was growing up, I was really in awe of, of the US. I saw the space shuttle launch. I remember being at school for the first space shuttle launch. I was just amazed, you know, some of the things the US was doing. And I feel it's such a shame now how the US, everything they do, it's not because we want to help or we want to progress, it's to counter China. And I think if the US just actually focused on doing what they're good at, I mean, some of the best things have come out of the US over the years. They are very, very good at, you know, innovation. I think if they could just take their focus off trying to to stop China's rise and focus on just, you know, innovating, research and development, I personally believe they could still stay ahead of China. Yeah, they have some of the best universities in the world in the United States. I mean, England has incredible universities too, but the United States just has way more of them. So it's it's a bigger bigger population. And yeah, I I agree with that argument a lot. If the United States was cooperating and competing in a different kind of way, they could probably attract more talent more readily. But essentially, they've been scaring away the talent in my assessment because they're saying all these terrible things about China and Chinese people. And the effect is is noticeable, not just in the United States, but a lot of other Western countries. For sure. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Well, I wanted to talk about uh, solar energy 
a little bit. Now, China produces more PV than any nation in the world by far. It's like like 10 times more than the rest of the world combined. Now, one of the things that is a huge priority Uh all over the world right now is climate change. Now, uh, Europe is very serious about this and the United States claims to be very Mm -hmm. serious about this. And Australia clearly needs to make some moves. And so does Canada. A lot of countries around the world where fossil fuel emissions are a very real issue. If you're Germany right now and you're really serious about cleaning up uh, industry, Mm -hmm. it seems like Installing as much solar and wind as fast as you can is the way forward, putting aside the problems of battery technology and because there are, there are lots of that's a whole separate discussion. Perfect. Does it make sense if you are France, Germany, Canada, the United States to import China's produces the most affordable solar in the world? Or does it make sense to protect your own industry and try to build at home? Because there's an argument to be made for both. One, I want to create jobs, so I should create my own solar industry. Or two, this is such a massive problem that we just need to fix it right Uh now. And importing from China is clearly the fastest way down that road. For sure. My opinion would be to to import from China. Now, the pandemic of a few years ago highlighted some real issues within within Europe and the US. Now, I, I very much agree that for strategic things, like it, it, it was very obvious that the, the, the UK and the US to some respect was lacking in sort of protective equipment to deal with pandemics. I think for some sort of, you know, uh, critical industries, they should keep manufacturing, you know, regardless of whether they can make it cheap or not. I think it's it's highly unlikely places or sort of other countries can manufacture as cheap as China. China really have very, very strong in manufacturing. They're very good at it. They have very slick systems. Something like solar panels, which are not sort of, uh, you know, a critical industry, I, I think they should just go ahead and and import fr- from the Chinese companies. And I actually see, you know, countries wanting to impose tariffs and that. And what I think is that before I mentioned, I feel China are very strategic and they you know, took a view maybe 10 years ago that they knew solar and electricity was going to be the way forward. Hence, they invested a lot into, uh, you know, the main product in electric car batteries is lithium. They, they invest in the whole supply chain, even from mines to processing the lithium to doing this. Well, because of these sort of five-year cycles, um, the politically in, in Western countries, they never have this long-term view and this is something that I think benefits China. They've mastered these sort of longer term strategies. Like I, I live in Shenzhen. For years, there's been no fossil fuel taxis or buses in Shenzhen. And I would say 30 to 40% on the, of private vehicles on the road are now electric. But I just think China have these much longer term plans and visions, which because of the political system in the West, they don't have, you know, to, to come back to your question, I think climate change is a big problem. We need to be transitioning to green energy. And I think that they should sort of swallow their pride that they didn't get into the supply chain early enough and that China are now pretty dominant in that. And I think they should buy from from China personally. You know, you get to travel around a lot more than most people, even people who do Uh live here from foreign countries in China. Could you tell us one or two places that stood out in your mind that you would recommend that other people visit? So Chongqing, Chongqing, um, 
I, I'm a bit older, but if, if you're young, it's got a great vibe there. You know, people are out eating and chatting and dancing and singing till well into the early hours. It, it's got a really, really good vibe. It's a great city. It's very hot in the summer mine. Um, mm. I've actually just been to um, Jili province and it, it was my first time there. And I found that to be um, a great place. There's some, there's some great stuff to do there. It's not on most people's radars, but I actually had a, a good time there. There's interesting things to see and do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. There, there's so many places in China that, that have, have got cool stuff going on, you know, but 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 Jilin was, was really interesting. Most of my guests that I have on, like we mentioned at the beginning of the program, they don't go back as often as you for your 13 years where you're traveling back and forth. <laughs> so one of the questions I like to ask all of my guests is when you returned home, what shock to you. But I think your answer might be different because you went back and forth. So we could we talk about maybe the first year or two as you were going back and forth between China and the UK. What kinds of things did you notice that stood out in your mind that were similar and different about both places? Okay. So observations were that the first one was just the amount of people in China compared to the the UK. I mean, it's it's on a completely different level. We have a city with a million people. That's a big city. That's just a small time city. It's just a tower in China. The other thing was convenience in China. Now, I, I went through the time where we, we, we saw WeChat Pay come in and Alipay and just how quickly Chinese people adopt technology that makes their lives easier. Um, and I noticed that that's something that's big thing in China, whereas in the UK, people are much, especially older people, are much more slower to adopt technology where here in China, they, they adopt it much quicker. And also on that basis about paying with like fingerprint or face, there's a lot more of a pushback to that in the West because they think it's a privacy issue, whereas I don't see that so much here in China. And another thing, I was just, I, I'd grown up, um, mm. I'm obviously uh, older than numerous people, but I thought it, I've lost my train of thought then. Okay. Oh, yeah. So gr growing up, um, a, a lot of what I saw on the TV in the UK was when, whenever they talked about China, they would show footage of, of Beijing, people wearing their grey clothes, holding their little red books, riding their bicycles. Now, although I realised China was, was not still like that, even 18 years ago when I landed in Shanghai, I was pretty shocked at how modern that city was and and shortly after that there was the olympic games and you know they, they opened some of the first high-speed uh, train lines and i was wow you know this is this is really sort of you know they're really invested in their their infrastructure another one is cleanliness how how clean their cities were and i've seen that all of those things i spoke about just continue to improve over the the sort of 18 years i've been coming here and, and spent time here no i was actually gonna that was gonna be my next question because i came here in 2012 uh, 11 years ago and it's no secret and it's absolutely true that in 2012 2013 2014 you know, Beijing skies, and I'm not sure about all the other cities as much. I, I went to Jinan. It was the same there. Uh, we're gray often. And, you know, there were a lot of, you could smell, you know, the smell of coal. It was 
palpable, literally palpable, you know, the, the degree of the pollution. But from 2015 to maybe 2019, it just disappeared. And, you know, like that's one of the things that I noticed in my 10 years here is that, you know, the environment, not just the air, but the water quality was cleaned up just dramatically, night and day, completely different place. People who haven't been here in the last, you know, five or six or seven years, they may have a completely different picture in their mind, as you mentioned earlier in some of your comments. And I was wondering, since you've been coming and going from China for 18 years, what are some of the changes that you've noticed over that time? And maybe why should people who haven't been here in a while come back and see what it, contemporary China is like? <laughs> Well, as you just mentioned, the, the air and water pollution is a, a huge thing. That's been cleaned up and it continues to be cleaned up. Now, I, th I think what people don't realise as well is just how big of a country China is. You know, you can't possibly have the same amount of CO2 emissions as, as the US or the UK. And, and this annoys me when I see people, they, they will quote absolute numbers. Well, you have to look at per capita and China... CO2 emissions per capita are way down the list of, of many other countries. I think Europe and, and, and the USA are some of the biggest um, CO2 emitters per capita. Um, I've noticed that. I've no, noticed how um, they've, they've put in infrastructure, high-speed train to pretty much all the major cities, trains to a lot of smaller towns, highways. There's a, there's been, certainly in the last two or three years, there's been a massive push towards electric vehicles. You know, I, I would say a good 30 to 40% of vehicles, like private vehicles on the road in Shenzhen are now electric. I see there's, there's a big push from the government for people to buy um, EVs. Other things I've noticed um, since I've been coming is how they've sort of smaller villages that were very underdeveloped, how they've been developed, how the government's helped families in those villages to, to make incomes by the advent of online streaming. I think that's probably one of the, the biggest things that have really helped remote economies, rural economies in China. You know, we, we went to, to one place where many years ago they grew a crop of cord and they were quite poor in this, this village town and they, they had failures in their, their crop. So some of the leaders from, from the village wanted to change and we're going to grow uh, vegetables. So they went to another province to learn how to, you know, look after and cultivate the vegetables. Now they're far wealthier. Every year they grow huge crops of vegetables. They sell them using live streaming. They're able to ship them all over China because the infrastructure is now there. And I've seen many examples of this where basically because there's a saying in China that to, to build your economy, you first need to build the roads. And that's something that I think the West failed to understand. Like in England, everything they build is, oh, how are we going to make a profit on it in year one? You know, the way that China are criticized by many observers in the West. Oh, you know, high-speed rail, it's cost X billions to build. You'll never get the money back. But the money comes back in, in the economy because people can move around, goods can move around. And this is this is an intangible benefit that is it's very difficult to measure that. It's a different set of KPIs than just like, is, yeah, for is sure. rail benefiting 
the people who invested in rail directly. There's a totally different set of KPIs that you can see on the ground. Um, we don't work kind of out uh-huh. of time. Could you tell us that what platform can our listeners find you on? Okay. Where would you like them to go looking for? Okay. You? So if you want to find us from the West, um, YouTube, um, if you're inside China, either Bilibili, Totia, or Douyin. What's, what's your channel called? Okay. So it's called Barrett, which is my family name, my surname, B-A-R-R-E-T-T. And then for YouTube, just add a YT on the end. And for the Chinese platforms, it's Barrett mm. Kanjongguo. Thank you so much for your time, Lee. And uh, thank you for everything that you and your son do. And I uh, look forward to your next explorations in China. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a really interesting conversation. 